The story is told of two young boys who were forever getting into trouble, the kind of kids that were disrupting classes in school, teasing neighborhood children, taking what didn't belong to them. And one day their mother asked the pastor to come to see them and see if she, he couldn't talk some sense into them and talk them out of the things that they've been doing. So the pastor thought rather than reprimand them or, you know, threaten them, he decided on a more subtle approach. He would try to help the boys understand that God is everywhere. He's aware of everything and is displeased when they act wrongly. But he wanted the boys to come to this conclusion on their own, so he began by asking them some questions. And the two young boys were sitting in front of him. He said, young men, he says, I have a question for you. He said, where where is God? And they just stood there and looked at him and didn't say anything. And so he asked him again, he said, where, where is God? And he was a little bit more firm this time. Where, where is God? And they just sat there. They were silent, you know, too frightened to speak. And he said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Where is God? And the older boy grabbed his younger brother and said, let's get out of here. God's missing. They think we did it. You know, and, and uh, the, while the boys missed the obvious point, the story does remind us of the tension that's involved in trying to find something that has been lost. You know, if you've ever, uh, ever lost an item of great value, you know, fellas, the uh, TV remote, <laughs> something like that, you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, you know, the sweat that builds up and the tension that's there. And, you know, and you have flashbacks to the days where you actually had to get off the couch and walk all the way to the TV and, and turn the knob. You know, we had to turn, not push a turn a knob. And then, I don't, you know, some of you may remember the days where we actually would take turns who was going to hold the rabbit ears, you know, and, and, uh, and, the, and the foil on top so it didn't fall off, you know, and it would, it would switch off. Okay, your turn, and you'd be like trying to watch when you're, and it was like, and now, you know, if you lose a remote, you know, you know what kind of tension that's, that, that is involved. And, you know, on a serious note, you, you, anything that's ever been lost of great value, you, have, you know what that sick and desperate feeling is uh, to try to recover that which was lost. And if you've ever been there and you know what I'm talking about, then you'll understand that's the backdrop as we come to what I'm going to call the lost and found section of Scripture. In Luke chapter 15, we find a passage that is a parable that has three panels uh, to complete the picture for us. And uh, in this particular chapter, it has one great theme. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with, me to Luke chapter, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, because the great theme of Luke 15 is not just lost and found, but it's also the joy that's associated when you find that valuable item that was lost. And in Luke chapter 15, we're going to take a look at two, this is going to be a two-part message this morning, we're going to look at part one. And it begins in verse 1 where we read these words, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a 100 lost sheep, and he has lost, I'm sorry, 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, as I was going through this, there are three truths which, three truths which emerge as I read this passage, and they form the outline that will follow And the first point is that, you know, when you look at verses 1 and 2, what stands out is that Jesus receives lost sinners. You know, if you look at that again, we're told that all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And it was probably quite a crowd when you consider the fact that all of them were coming to listen to what he has to say. And we're told that at that time, the scribes and the Pharisees began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, when you look at who was coming to gather to Jesus to listen to the words that he had to speak, it says that all the tax gatherers, and tax gatherers were those who had bought a tax-collecting franchise from the Roman government. They were Jewish people who had the money to buy this franchise, and they would buy this tax-collecting franchise, and basically their job was to collect the tariffs or the taxes that were due Rome, and they also were able to take whatever they wanted over and above that. And so they became known in their own culture as the greatest thieves of their own people. And they were despised and forsaken because of that. They were cruel and they were crooks. And, and nobody wanted anything to do with the tax gatherer. And so when the religious people saw that Jesus entertained or welcomed or received these people, they were caught off guard because they would have nothing to do with them. And we're also told that sinners came to him. And in the context, sinners probably referred to those who were guilty of sex, some type of sexual immorality. And so this group of people that were coming to Jesus, and a, and a great crowd, I may add, were, you know, it was turning off the religious establishment. And basically they were saying, what kind of guy is this Jesus who would receive these types of people? And so... The lowest of the low in society, in their eyes, were coming to Jesus, not because he catered to them or because he promised that his, you know, he compromised his message, but because he cared for them. You know, he understood their needs and he tried to help them while the religious folks criticized them and kept their distance. The word receives is a very strong word and indicates that, you know, it's a, it's a clear word picture and attitude of Jesus towards sinners you know he didn't like the religious leaders gather his garments around him afraid that if one of them touched them you know touched him he would be unclean and can you imagine uh, just just walking down the street and you see a religious person who sees you and they just turn from you and they grab their clothes and they walk away and just go give you one of those looks unfortunately you've probably experienced that in your own life sometimes because i have seen it in churches and it breaks my heart when i see something like that Kind of like, what are you doing here? You're not one of us. You're not one of our kind. We don't really have any need for you and a use for you. And there's that religious superiority that often happens with, to, to religious people. That somehow we're better than you and, you know, stay away from us and certainly don't touch us because you'll defile me in some way. And I can imagine the hurt that went through their hearts as they were rejected by people. And granted, some of the rejection was due to the choices that they had made, but at the same time, Jesus didn't treat them like that. He sat down with them. We're told that he sat down with them, and he ate with them. And perhaps even on this occasion, he was sitting there having lunch with this group of people when the religious leaders were standing off to the side looking at him going, what's what's wrong with this guy? 
Not only does he welcome them and receive them, but he eats with them, he dines with them, he shares a meal with them. I mean, how far is this guy going to go? He's insulting to our religious system. You know, when you you stop, and and he was making himself one with sinners, yet he himself without sin, so that he might win them to himself. And we're told he would win those who would listen to him. Notice in verse 1, it's so important to recognize those who came, came to listen to him. And I don't think there's any irony that all through the word of God, the Bible says that we are to listen to the word of God and then act upon that which we hear. These people came to him and they listened to him. And he was hoping they would act upon what he said to them. And then here's the religious leaders. There's no irony to this. They refused to listen to Jesus. They didn't want to hear anything that he had to say. And he continued to love them and continued to encourage them and continued to speak truth to them. And he didn't compromise to them. But at the end of the day, the difference between these groups of people were that this group over here said, I don't have to listen to you, the religious. And this group over here said, I want to listen to you because you have words that speak to my heart. Which, which camp are you in? Because we fall in one or the other. And I also have found that the hardest people to reach with the words of God are religious people. Because they just have enough of religion to satisfy their spiritual thirst so they feel no need for the deeper things of God's truth. Those are the people who align themselves with churches or denominations. You know, do you believe in God? I'm this. And they label themselves. Well, that's not what the question is. Do you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? I'm this. Well, that's not what the question was. See, religious people have just enough of religion that they don't have any interest in listening to God's truth. These men had just enough of religion that they weren't interested in a relationship with the God who made them. And when we look at this, we see that, you know, we, we, never, we can never mistake having religion with having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. To believe upon Him, to become a child of God to those who believe in His name, we enter into a relationship with the God who has made us by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, believing in His death and His resurrection. And we are born again by the will of God and adopted into the family of God. And, you know, we're in God's family. We may align ourselves or identify ourselves with a church, but never mistake your alliance with a church with your relationship with God through faith in Christ. See, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus preached at them, that he scolded them, that he looked down on them, that he ignored them, but he received them and he welcomed them. You know, and we must remember that it doesn't mean that he overlooked their sins and their need for God's forgiveness. Because one of the great examples in John chapter 8, the adulterous woman caught in the very act of adultery and brought before him. And he said to her at the end of this confrontation, he said, you know what, go and sin no more. What he was saying was, you know what, you are guilty, but I have shown you mercy. Go and sin no more. See, he upheld truth, and yet in order to be heard, he demonstrated his love and his concern and his compassion. I ask myself, and and, and I ask you to, to really examine yourself, is the reason that 
the message of Jesus Christ so unappealing to people in our life is the reason because of us and the way we present it to them. Is it because we don't show any compassion or care, concern for them? And so therefore, they have no interest in anything that we have to say. Because people won't care about what we have to say until they know that we care about them. And see, that's how Jesus reached those hurting hearts. I care about you. And I'll demonstrate that care. And while we develop this relationship, I'll use it as an opportunity to instruct you in God's ways. To teach you God's truths. Not to be condemning or judgmental or, you know, that sour face that so many Christians have that turns people off in the world, but to genuinely love and care and can be concerned for people. One of the great things about this last year of my life is that God is just crushing me. And when He crushes you, He can use you because you realize it's not you, it's Him. And when He has you go through things that you can now empathize with others and relate to them and have compassion towards them, it's a wonderful thing because you thought you did, but you weren't even close to it. You know, there's always, you know, a reason that something happens to somebody. You know, and, and unfortunately, that's not always the case. There's a reason in God's jurisdiction and by His viewpoint, but it's not always the reason that we, in our, our you know, self-righteous, haughty spirit, come up with and, and, and assess. This has happened to you because of this and therefore that. And it isn't always that way. We're to care for people. We're to love them. We're, we're to be concerned for them. Even when the, the, the problems in their life are a direct result of their own disobedience to God's truth, we are still to love them and use that compassion and concern as a platform to then instruct them in truth, to correct them and, and to show them the right way to go so that those things won't happen again. But you know what? Maybe we need to cry with them for a little bit. Maybe we need to just hold their hand or hug them just for a little bit and put the lesson on the back burner until the right time when they're willing and they're ready and prepared to listen. We need to show more compassion. We need to be more like Jesus. We need to love people. We need to receive people. We need to welcome people. And it's my prayer that we as a church body, that we as a group of God's people... We'll, we'll always make every person that walks through these doors and the doors that are being built welcome in our presence, received by us. And there's nothing that said how they came to Jesus. Some of them came with a whole bunch of baggage. Some of them came with some hurting backgrounds. Some of them came with stories and histories of abuse and drug abuse and family abuse and alcohol abuse and neglect and some of them didn't even come to them on their own because they couldn't and their friends carried them. It doesn't matter how you come, just come to them. You know, and if you can't, you know, the divine promise of God is that, you know, whoever wishes, let them take the free gift of the water of life. Let them come unto him. Jesus said, come unto me. All you are weary laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. See, from the passage, as believers, we learn something vitally important. And that is, if we are to reach the world, the lost of this world with the gospel, the world with the word of God, then we're to love people. 
When Dwight, when uh, D.L. Moody was directing his uh, Sunday school class in Chicago, one boy walked several miles to attend on a weekly basis. When somebody asked him, why don't you just go to a Sunday school class closer to your home? He responded with words that probably were the same reply that was used by the tax gatherers and sinners in Jesus' day. He said this, because they love a feller over there. I thought, isn't that the greatest? Why don't you just go to a church closer to your house? (laughs) No, you know what? I go because they love people over there. And I sense it when I walk in. And I sense it in the activities of the week. And I sense it when things go on in my life. People are there for me. God's people, are they, they raise up, they rise up to the occasion. They love a feller over there. I think that's great. I want people to say about Kindred Community Church, I go there because they love a feller over there. See, author and Nobel laureate Ellie Weisel was a survivor of Buchenwald, the Buchenwald concentration camp during World War II. And he writes this in his book, All Rivers Run to the Sea. And he recalls how he became a U.S. citizen. He says, I was working in New York City as a correspondent for a French newspaper when my travel permit expired. He says, at the French consulate, I was informed that the document could be validated only in France. I didn't have enough money to get back there, and I was anxiously wondering whether I would be deported from America. I went to the U.S. immigration office where an official smiled and said, Why don't you just become a U.S. resident? Then later you can apply for your citizenship. I stared at him. Could I actually become a U.S. citizen? He said, it's hard to put into words how much I owe that kindly immigration official, especially when I recall my annual visits uh, to the police department in Paris with its long lines and humiliating interrogations. The refugee's time is measured in visas, his biography and stamps on his documents. There's nothing romantic about the life of an exile. In later years, a high official asked whether I would like to have French nationality. Though I thanked him, I declined the offer. When I needed a passport, it was America that gave me one. The point is simple. People go where they're welcome. And in the church, we must uh, help sinners and seekers know we're glad to have them. We're glad they came. Luke 15, you know, the deepest feelings of Jesus are found with these two groups of people. You know, if you stop and think about it, his compassion went out to notorious sinners and his righteous anger out to the religious hypocrites. Yet even to those hypocrites, as I mentioned, his heart was moved with pity because they too were wandering from God. And you know, we owe a great deal to the Pharisees and the scribes because many of the parables are a direct result of their confrontations with Jesus. And so we thank him for the fact that this parable that we have before him is laid out in three panels that help put the whole picture together for us. You know, it helps us to understand what it means to be lost and found. The second thing that I note is that Jesus retrieves lost sinners. And that's the focus of verses 3 through 10. You know, he told them this parable. This parable in three panels that will be laid out. Two of them we'll see in this message. Next week we'll look at the third. And the first panel is a picture of the Son of God as the great seeker and saver of that which was lost. The theme of Luke's gospel is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. 
And so basically, Jesus answering their accusation, like, you know, what kind of guy would eat with people like this? He says, well, what man among you, speaking to that group of people, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? He's saying, you know, from a very familiar setting, he uses this as a teaching platform. He says, well, wait, let me ask you something. You're asking, what kind of guy am I? What kind of people are you? Which one among you, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, won't one of you go after the one that is lost? And what he was trying to get across to them was that, you know, is not the shepherd compelled by his great love and concern for his flock? To retrieve the lost sheep? That's his argument, very simply. Of course he is. And why? Because he knows that each sheep has value and a lost sheep was in grave danger. And so he takes a word picture of a shepherd and of sheep and he begins to teach them spiritual truths that will be applicable not only to them but also to us. And he's saying that, you know what, lost sinners are compared to sheep. You know, and and all throughout the Bible, we are compared to sheep. And it's not a pretty portrait. Sheep are just flat dumb. You know, and and, and it comes down to they're just stupid. And God's saying, you know what, each one of us have, like sheep, gone astray. And so it's a vivid imagery that everyone's familiar with. You got these 100 sheep over there and one of them just goes, I'm going over here. You know, and, they are, and, they, and that's what they were known to do. They were prone to wander. That's why God created them, to use them as an illustration to help us understand what we're like. They were just prone to wander. They would just wander away, you know, and, and they, they, they didn't care about the shepherd. They had no interest in the shepherd. They didn't care about the shepherd's voice. They were ignoring the shepherd. They were doing their own thing. And man, isn't that the case when it comes to humanity? It's like we just want to do our thing when we want to do it. We have no interest in the voice of the shepherd. We don't want to hear him. And when we do hear him, we go like this, blah, 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 blah. Uh, still hear him, you know. And we don't want to hear him. You know, we, we just want to wander off, you know. Wide-eyed, just looking at everything the world has to offer. Uh, you know, and, and we kind of go that direction. But, you know, a sheep was in constant danger of hunger and disease and the wolf that was wandering, you know, wandering around waiting for that dumb sheep to just leave the protection of of the shepherd. You know, and in like manner, a sinner without the Savior is in grave danger of increasing his or her sin and being devoured by the devil. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around looking for someone to devour. And that's the world we live in. You and I who know God and know God's truth, we look at people who make decisions and go, man, how dumb was that? Well, all you got to do is think, hey, you know what? That's just sheep. That's what sheep do. They do dumb things. And yet this beautiful picture is, you know, and the question, why does Jesus receive sinners? Hey, why does he retrieve sinners? Because I'm the good shepherd. That's what he said. The focus is on the shepherd. If those who were asking the question would have been listening to him, they would have made an eternally life-changing discovery because the Old Testament is rich in shepherd imagery. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But more importantly, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, if for no other reason to see if you can find it. (laughs) It's in the Old Testament. Just start heading that way. 
Ezekiel chapter 34. Those of you who have tabs, you can share this knowledge that you have with the person sitting next to you. It's a wonderful thing. Table context in the front. It's, it's just great. But in Ezekiel chapter four, 34, there's a, there's a very vivid word picture of the shepherd, the good shepherd, the Messiah, when he comes, what he will do to gather his people. And we read, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Isn't that great? As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And what a cloudy and gloomy day it was, the day that Adam chose to rebel against God. And I will bring them out from the people's and gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground, and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. And I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring them back or I will retrieve the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Notice what he says. I will go out. God himself will go out as a shepherd and seek his people. And I will gather them up. But those who are fat and haughty, those who think they're healthy, those who think they don't need God, then all that I have for them is judgment. And if the religious leaders had been paying attention to the Bible that they say they knew in the Old Testament, they would have saw Jesus warning them that, you know what, this is what I've come to do. God has come to seek his people to retrieve that which was lost on that infamous day in human history when Adam rebelled against God and God himself came to seek that which was lost and retrieve them back to himself. But those who felt no need for God, there was nothing left for them but judgment. Jesus went on in in John chapter 10 to call himself the good shepherd and use the same imagery to help us understand that in this parable, this picture that we see is is uh, an everyday occurrence to teach spiritual truth. In John 10 verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. But notice Jesus says, but I'm the good shepherd and I'll give up my life for my sheep. But all the rest who are pretenders, they're just going to run and that day comes. And so as we bring this all back together, when you look at Luke chapter 15, you know, the shepherd in Judea had a hard and dangerous task. You know, the shepherd had to watch over sheep in a plateau that wasn't very wide, only a couple miles in width to to graze or for pasture. And all the rest were cliffs that basically rolled down into the forsaken desert. And the shepherd knew of all the dangers that if that sheep wandered outside of our protection, that sheep is going to fall down this hillside and be prey. Not only to wolves, but to thieves and to everybody else that was out there. And his life, and this life was in great jeopardy. And so he knew the danger, and he knew that when one would just stray away of the importance of going after that one and retrieving that one. 
And, and, and most of the time, shepherds, if there was a hundred in, in, in a flock, in this particular case, there were several shepherds that were watching over. So when the one went to find the one that was lost, he didn't leave the other 99 unprotected. They were protected. And he would go after him and bring him back. And when he found him, the joy that was found when he would pick this sheep up and put it over his shoulders and carry it back. Because if a shepherd lost a sheep, he would have to bring back the remains to prove what had happened to it. So there was no accusation of theft on somebody's part. And so he would be responsible to bring him back and to show people, hey, you know what, this is what happened. But he would carry this, this, this sheep, he would put him on his shoulders and he would carry him back. And as he went back into town, no doubt at that particular point, all of the town, uh, townsfolks had heard that this sheep was lost and the one shepherd was going after him to get him. And when he would come back and he would be walking into town and the other shepherds had already moved their sheep that direction, there was joy that was spontaneous joy. It was like a person that was lost and is found. And we see that often in our culture. Somebody's lost out in the desert. Somebody's lost like the gal that was, you know, kidnapped and abducted. And, you know, a year later, they, you know, they find her. And, and, the, and the joy that is there and the spontaneity and the relief and, and all that goes with it. It's like, wow, you know, praise God. That's exciting. And what Jesus was trying to help them to see, and, and you know, and they're looking at him saying, wow, man, that's a burden to carry that sheep. But you know what? Jesus doesn't consider it a burden to carry our sins. It says he despised the shame and endured the pain for the joy that was set before him. As he went into Jerusalem to offer up his life and he knew he would be turned over and he knew that his days, the day of, his, uh, of what he came to do would be accomplished. He would die on the cross for our sins and carry the burdens of the world upon his shoulders on the cross. It says he endured that pain and despised the shame and the ridicule and the names and everything that went with it and being associated with a person who would die under crucifixion, the, the lowest, most demeaning form of corporal punishment. And the Bible says that, you know what, he didn't focus on that. He focused on the joy that was set before him. Because I came to retrieve that was lost, and those who trust in me are now found, and all of the joy that goes along with it makes the pain pale in comparison. There's joy that goes along with it, and throughout eternity, he will make the angels in heaven glad by showing them the lost people that he has found. We are his workmanship His trophies, His sheep that He has carried on His shoulders, created in Christ Jesus to do the works that God has ordained for us to do before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful truth that is. You know, and and, and we must also go out and seek those who are lost, those who have strayed. We've got to be proactive and go into the world. That is why I've told you all along and I'll continue to tell you that our service here is not going to be geared for those who are lost and wandering. It will be geared to, to worship the God that we've come to trust, to be instructed in His Word and be equipped for the work that God has us to do. And we leave here and then we go out into the world. That's the biblical mandate. We go out as Jesus went out to seek those who are lost with the empowering message of God's love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We go to them. We don't make them come to us. We go to them. We seek them out. And we get creative in how we do that. You know, a baseball game, great. Listen, I, you know, I said on the radio yesterday, if you can't invite somebody to a baseball game, what are you going to invite them to? 
You know what I'm saying? It's like, wow. I mean, you know, and the whole purpose is not the baseball. The whole purpose is to hear what God has done in Garrett's life. And we use baseball as a creative way to get them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we love people and we care for them. We're concerned that they're wandering far from God and they are ultimately going to be destroyed because they are, they're on their road to hell. We're all born into the world on the road to hell. And without divine intervention, that's where we would all end up. Just like that sheep that falls down the hillside and ends up rotten in the desert. And you know what? What a beautiful picture for us to understand that hell and the devil is like just a barren desert where God has the beauty of all of heaven waiting for God's people who will trust in Christ. That's the word picture. A second word picture that he uses draws the women in to this particular uh, conversation. And, uh, you know, and I'm learning from Jesus. You know, so much of what I do is all about sports and, you know, this kind of stuff. And so I, I learned something today or this, this week as I was studying this, you know, how Jesus used an event that a woman could relate to to help teach the same spiritual truth but reach her where she was. And that is, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? So he says, okay, fellas, you're all macho. You know the, 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 the picture of a shepherd? The shepherd was the local hero. Everybody loved shepherds, man. These guys would lay down their life for their job, man. They had a passion for what they did. They loved what they did. They loved their sheep. They loved their flock. They knew the, and paid attention to the state of their flock. And man, and one went out and risked himself against wolves and thieves and danger and came back in. Man, this guy was a hero. And all the guys were going, hey, 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 hey. And all the ladies are going, I don't know, I don't get it. That testosterone thing, I don't know, I don't understand it. So he switches gears and he says, well, wait a minute. Now, you women, you'll relate to this. Which one of you, if you have ten coins, loses one of them, won't spend the whole night trying to find the coin? You say, well, you know, a coin, what's the big deal about a coin? Well, it, two, two things here. One is the coin was about a day's wages, which meant that it had tremendous value when it came to sustenance for a family. But more importantly... Ladies, listen up. When women in that culture were to get married, they had to save coins until they had ten of them. And when they had ten of them, then they wore that as a headpiece. And so this gal, this woman, had been saving for who knows how long because of the expense of this to go ahead and have these ten coins to have this headpiece so when she got married, she could wear it. And so basically, it would be the same today as if you had bought your own engagement ring and lost it. What happened to those days, men? (laughs) Buy your own engagement ring. Wow. Look at this. Look what I got. Hey, that's nice. You know? But, but so the reality of it is, is that, she, you know, she lost, you know, this, this symbol of, you know, her pride as being a wife. And so when she lost that coin, she tore that place up. I mean, she just tore it up. No, it says, it said, man, she was, she was sweeping, brooming. You know, that house hadn't been that clean probably in a long time. You know, because it was dirty, dusty, you know, uh, mud floors, dirt floors. And, and it says she lit a lamp and, man, she went after it. And she was diligent about it. And, and, you know, and, and as she went about it, hey, when she found it, it's party time. And rightfully so. You know, it's interesting, you know, you think about taking something that was lost a few weeks ago. I was at the stadium and I saw a maintenance guy that I see on a regular basis when I go to do chapel. And I asked him how his day was going. And he had this panic look on his face and he said, 
it's going to be going great if I find my keys where I think I left them. And he was just zoom, gone. And about 30 minutes later, he came walking by and he had this big smile on his face. I said, I th- you find the keys? And he held up this keychain, man. It had like 50 keys on it. And it was, like, it was like keys to everything. And he was just sweating bullets, man. This guy knew if I lost this, I'm a dead man. That would bury me under third base somewhere, you know. And, and, and it was like, oh, I found these, man. This this joy on his face, this smile on his face. And, and, and you know, when you stop and think about this. He says, in the same way, I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Before we look at that, I just want to make a couple of uh, mentions about a coin. This coin had no consciousness of its lost condition. That coin, I guess, was just as happy in her purse as it was on the floor. That coin didn't know the difference between being lost and being found. And what a wonderful way to help us understand that folks in the world that are lost to God don't even know it. They just flat out don't know it. And it is our responsibility, those who have been granted the mystery of the knowledge of God, to help them understand how lost they are. That's why God has given us the Word of God to use as a standard to convict hearts that they have fallen short of God and what He expects of us. They don't even know they're lost. I'll give you an illustration from my own life. I felt fine. Saw a lump, went to the doctor, turned into all the stuff that you all know about. I felt fine. It was a responsibility of the doctor to convince me that I was as sick as he thought I was. It is the responsibility of God's people to convince lost people that they are as sick and as lost and as forsaken as God says they are. We have got to become creative in doing that. We have got to use the Word of God to do that. The first panel is a picture of the Son of God seeking those who are lost. The second panel is a picture of the Holy Spirit diligently seeking those who are lost through the power of the Word of God. We use the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring people to a knowledge of their need to repent, to turn from their sin that they don't even know they're guilty of. Why? Because everybody's doing it. Think about our culture. Sexual immorality is rampant. Why? Because it's become so, so acceptable. A generation ago it wasn't, but today it is. Living together? I mean, you know, most people don't even give it a second thought. Why? Everybody lives together. Other sexual sin? Hey, you know what? A whole bunch of people do it. In fact, we promote it and we want to, you know, we want to pass this legislation and that one to try to tell everybody it's okay. We need to use God's word to help people understand that it's not okay. And it's not because we got a problem with it. It's because God has a problem with it. And if God has a problem with it, we have a problem with it because our responsibility is to help people see that God has a problem with it. But if we don't do that, they don't even know how lost they are. And if you don't know you're lost, you don't look for directions on how to get found. Think about it. We've got to convince people 
how sick they are. God's people and His Word and the Spirit of God are God's spiritual CAT scan. God's spiritual MRI. God's spiritual whatever test you've had to take to discover a physical ailment. That's what we are to this world. God uses us as His spiritual measuring point so that people can get centered on truth. And God's Word is truth. Sanctify them, God's people, in truth. Thy Word is truth. The candle of the gospel, the broom of the law, and God's people searching for the lost. One last truth is evident in this passage, and as I mentioned a moment ago, and that is that Jesus rejoices when one lost sinner repents. I love that. And that's clearly seen in verses 6 and 7 about the sheep that is found. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have been found. I have found my sheep, which was lost. I think about those men that were trapped in that um, uh, mine a few years back in Pennsylvania. And all the work that went into to, to finding them and to retrieving them. And the joy that was on the faces of the family and the people and the searchers and the workers and the spontaneity and, and the celebration. And, and just, man, it was like, you know, and, it, and rightfully so. I think the joy of anybody that's lost or the joy of finding anything of great value and the spontaneity and the joy that, that is there, you know, when we retrieve that which was lost. And the point is this, and if, we, uh, if, if there's such joy over a coin and such joy over a sheep and such joy over people that are stuck in a cave or people that are lost wandering around out in the wilderness or whatever it is, if there's such joy there, how much more joy should there be in heaven as God Himself rejoices over one sinner who repents? One sinner who repents can scarcely imagine the joy over hundreds of thousands and millions of lost people who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. And what a wonderful place heaven is and will be for all of us to live amidst that type of joy, that type of spontaneity. It's interesting is it says that the angels rejoice. And as I was reading this, I was really troubled by something that I hear on a regular basis, and I want to throw this out for food for thought, give you something to chew on for a while. But that is this. When a sinner repents, and the angels of God, and even God Himself rejoices, why would they rejoice when a sinner repents and not rejoice when a sinner arrives in the presence of God in His kingdom in heaven? Because there are those who would have us believe that, you know what, well, you know what, that person repented, but, you know, oh, but they wandered from God, and therefore, you know what, they lost somehow in this wandering, they lost their salvation. Well, certainly God would know that, and certainly the angels of God would know that. And so why would you waste your rejoicing on someone that ultimately could wander away from God and lose their salvation and the foolishness of their actions? To me, it's a very strong argument that, you know what, hey... God knows his own, and he rejoices when one comes home. And so do all the angels of heaven, and so should God's people. Spurgeon was quoted as having said this, We may judge our fitness for heaven by this test. Do we rejoice over repentant sinners? 
Sometimes I think I could flog myself and bite my tongue because I often preach with a dry eye and a heart not half as earnest as it should be. And man, I was convicted of that. How about you? Do you rejoice when you hear of a sinner who repents and receives Christ as Savior? Gene Fleming writes this. Recently something rapturous happened a few spaces down the church pew from me. The pastor announced that a young boy in our congregation named Crockett had given his heart to Christ that previous week. Another boy, about four years of age, immediately jumped up on the seat of our pew, thrust his fist into the air, and yelled, Yay, Crockett! His response was totally unselfconscious. His joy and exuberance exhilarated and at the same time rebuked me. His mother had him sitting again in a second. Too bad. The entire congregation should have been standing on their pews yelling, Yay, Crockett! When was the last time you yelled, yay, Crockett, about someone you heard had repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ for his forgiveness, believing his death on the cross and his resurrection on their behalf and were born again by the will of God and adopted into the family of God? Do we really understand the spiritual, eternal significance of that wonderful moment in that person's life? God does. All the angels of heaven do. We need to as well. And by the way, there's rejoicing among the angels in the presence of the angels of God. And the question I had was, well, you know what? Who's in the presence of the angels of God but God himself? And you think about the joy that was on Jesus' face when he saw all the tax gatherers and sinners coming to him and turning from their sins and trusting in him for the forgiveness of those sins. And you can't help but see a savior, a shepherd, that had a smile from ear to ear as he hoisted that one lost sheep upon his shoulders and he bore his burdens on the cross and he endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. It's exciting to know that the day that you and I trust in Jesus himself has a big smile on his face and says, welcome home. It's been a long time. I'm glad you're back. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful word picture of what it means to be lost and straying far from God. And how the minds of those men had to be boggled by the truth that God himself has come to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ to seek and to save those who are lost and wandering from you. The Bible says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have gone our own way. And without your intervention, we would be destroyed by the enemy. God, I thank you. For this great love of yours. For you so love the world. A world filled with sinners and tax gatherers. And anything and everything imaginable under the sun. Manifesting our sin nature in just heinous ways. But yet you love us anyway.
so grateful that when I was in rebellion against you, that you still, still sought me out. That you called my name and I heard your voice. You welcomed me and received me. You told me the truth of my sinfulness and my need to turn from sin and to turn to you. Your spirit convicted my heart so that I could respond to this great invitation and love. The Bible says you stand at the door of our hearts and knock. And if we hear your voice and we open the door, you will come in and have fellowship with us. God's my prayer if anybody hears these words and is not sure or certain of that relationship with you. And they're hearing your voice even now. That they would just turn from sin. Praying a simple prayer. God forgive me for I am a sinner. And I believe what you say. That Jesus Christ died on the cross. To carry the burdens of my sin. The consequence of my actions. So that I will never be held accountable for those. That he imputed upon me his righteousness. That he rose again from the dead and is alive today and he is a savior that I can come to and believe upon and trust in. And I do so in the simplicity of what I understand even now at this point in time. God, I thank you that it's by no effort of mine, but you've done it all. The shepherd went out and found the sheep that was running in another direction. The sheep did nothing to save itself. The shepherd picked up the sheep and put it on his shoulders and bore the burden. And endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. God, I thank you that you have adopted me into your family. And for all of us as God's people who have trusted in Christ at various times in our life, at those historic, that historic moment, it is my prayer today that we will have a sense of urgency to recognize that we need to go into the world and, and to retrieve lost sheep, for they are lost. God, help us to have a sense of urgency to meet that need. God, also, when a person trusts in Christ, may we jump up and yell, Yay, Crockett, and praise you for the wonderful God that you are. There is no greater miracle on earth than raising one who is dead back to life. And that's what you do every time you take a person dead in their sins and raise them to life in the newness of Christ. We praise you that you know our name, that we are in your hands, and you will never lose one of your kids. Amen.